0: now listening to Soundspace, the podcast where we explore the space of sound. Hello everyone, and welcome back to Soundspace. We hope you had a wonderful holiday and a happy new year. We have a very special interview for you today, but before we get into that, please remember to follow Soundspace on your favorite podcatcher. You can find us on all social media platforms, which will be linked in the description. I would like to add that we are now sponsored by Laser Audio Technologies. They make really cool plugins, so if you're a plug-in junkie, just like us, go check them out at leza.io. That's lese.io. eio With all that said, allow me to please introduce our special guest for today's episode, Dr. Eldad Sabari. He is a Montreal-based composer, associate professor, chair of the Concordia Music Department, and co-director of the Performing Arts Research Cluster, Le Parc. He has dedicated his career to the development of electroacoustic music worldwide. As a professor, he has taught ear training, composition, modular programming, music theory, and live electronics at Concordia University, where he also founded the Concordia Laptop Orchestra, also known as CLORC, which has garnished international attention and is now one of the biggest electroacoustic ensembles in the world. He has also taught many audio-based topics such as synthesis, digital audio theory, Pro Tools, and sound for the image at Musitechnique. Sabari received his doctorate in music education from Boston University and as a professor, he has shaped the path of many aspiring musicians, artists, and sound engineers. He has passed down his knowledge in areas such as sound recording, digital audio, MIDI, synthesis, sampling, and much more. Along with his dedication to music and its evolving relationship with technology and synthetic mediums, his composition and performance styles include contemporary, experimental, acousmatic sound art and live electronics his works in all styles are created with wide textural and timbral variety with special attention to motion and process he is undoubtedly a -a one-of-a-kind individual within the industry who has in many ways pioneered the advancement of the latter into new frontiers please welcome dr eldad sabari
1: welcome to the podcast eldad how are you i'm good
2: it's a it's the weekend it's a time i uh i get a little bit of uh i don't know like I. Like i have a little bit of me time a little bit
1: yes <laughs> absolutely absolutely and anthony how are you been pretty good thank you how about you good very good i'm so excited uh i'll add, uh Obviously, you taught us both, and uh, now we're here interviewing you on Soundspace. This, uh, I would say this podcast was conceived on the hopes of one day interviewing you. So we're very excited to have you on. Um, I really just want to waste no time and get to the very first question. When did you first start making music? And what was it about music that made you want to dedicate yourself to it? Because you've obviously been doing it for many years now. Yeah, well, I don't remember ever
2: not having music in, in mm. like as a central... Uh, thing in my life, you know, growing up, my brothers and sisters have all kind of like, always played music around me, like you know, prog rock, uh, folk rock, just hard rock. You know, Janis Joplin, Led Zeppelin, you know, Pink Floyd, King Crimson. And King Crimson kind of grabbed me. I was like so amazed by King Crimson I... as, as a kid. and yes. Yeah, I think it's for a long time. I I I I thought that because of King Crimson. Probably, I mean, like it's, it hasn't changed really. Um, King Crimson is the reason I'm. I'm I became a musician eventually, um, although at, at the, the later days they, they pissed me off a bit. But uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but they're still they're still running, right? You know, like it started in 1969, mm-hmm. and they're still making music. Robert Fripp is a genius. I loved a lot when they had the tension between Robert Fripp and Bill Bruford, with uh, this amazing drummer, and they didn't get along at all. You know, but at the same time, they were the two longest-standing members. Um, and you could hear the tension between them in the music. It was because they're such amazing musicians. The, the tension made it into like just awesome, you know, like a, a kind of like constant, not exactly fighting, but just like intensity, you know, in the music. It was really good. And I thought that once Bill Bruford left um, after the Thrash album, uh, sorry, Thrack album, <laughs> um, which which was kind of a cool concept, uh, because. There were like two trios of drums, guitar, and stick, twice. Right. So basically, you had like these two bands, and one of them was uh, Bill. One of the drummers was Bill Bradford, and that was the last time he played. Um, And this album was awesome. And after that, was really interesting. I felt that the sound of King Crimson kind of remained, but the energy was lost. And you know, I you can't put your finger on it. It's like the rhythms are there, the asynchronous kind of like. uh, not asynchronous, like asymmetric, uh, uh, you know, meters are there. Everything is as complex, but somehow some something in the soul was gone. Anyway, I'm I'm getting off track here, off track. So uh, <laughs> the, uh, you know, music has always been kind of like I grew up into that. It was never a question of whether I'm going to play or, you know, it was more like what instrument I was going to play. And I so I guess I started at the age of six to study the organ, you know, like my brother, Doron, and... I was—I really slacked. I didn't practice, and after four years, I said, you know, like I don't want it anymore. But then, after two years, I started studying the flute, and the flute sort of got me into more like active performance and this kind of stuff. Also, I guess I started composing songs. And the first song I composed, I basically just uh, wrote on on little paper paper notes. I wrote chords, just threw them, and sort of picked them up in random, and just like made a sequence of chords randomly, and then I wrote a melody on it. I even remember it until today. It's actually kind of fun, uh, but you know, like since then, I, I've never really approached music making in any kind of standardized way. You know, like it's uh, it's kind of started right there and then. But it's just the way my, my brain works. So um, yeah, why I dedicated myself to music? It's there was I don't think there was ever well. It's not true that there was never a question. Like there was, of course, a question when you would choose your like. Like you two, when you choose your life path, you question, you know, like the, all your your brain sort of gets involved, you know, into like your decision making process, which is reasonable. I mean like the brain, you know, like what is needed, what will, you know, put bread on my on my table, or what uh, what will sustain me for long, all this kind of stuff is really important. Mm-hmm. Um but um at the same time I I don't believe in the brain as a long-term decision maker. I think destinations are the job of the heart. Where do I want to go? You know, the, the brain doesn't tell you where you want to go, right? Where you want to go, that, that's your heart, you know, and that's... Brain helps navigate, but really the boss of who tells you who, where you should go. <laughs> I think it's the heart. And, uh, and that, that guided me ever. And music has always been like a sort of a, a critical, central component of all my... Uh, social life as well. All of of my best friends, you know, like we were deeply into music, making, listening. We were admiring all these amazing musicians with their skills and and courage and, you know, going into sort of crazy harmonic uh, uh, world and rhythmic world and and melodies that are unique and like, you know, that that sort of gave us uh, a lot of meaning. My best friend from high school, Avi, plays used to play the uh, uh, well I guess he still plays uh, he didn't become a musician eventually became he became a, he became a, a developer of uh, technology of uh, computer technology for blind people he, he's blind so mm-hmm. uh, so well. he's and he's an amazing tech he was a sound person you know, I learned lo- a lot about sound from him um, mm-hmm. you know like at a very young age you know in the, the late 80s we recorded he worked as a sound technician in the studio. A lot of the recordings I did were, were with him. And in high school, we just used to uh, play for all these kind of festivals in the city. And she give us like a lot of, uh, you know, outlets to leave school in the middle of the day and go and, and rehearse. Even sometimes when there was no rehearsal, we just lied and said there was one and we'd go and, uh, and practice. Or just, you know, go and eat, eat falafel or something. <laughs> but uh, So, you know, it's just music has always been there. It's like kind of... a.
1: No, of course. Of course. I think, I think it's very evident that music has always been there and what you're describing, but obviously sound is something that you dedicate yourself to it, but it's also something that you create. And so, you know, I really want to get into also your, your music composition, you know, your classes were a lot about like ear training and the creation of sound. So I want to know what rules and concepts do you use to provoke creative sonic ideas as a music composer? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question,
2: you know, and, uh, and I mentioned that the first thing I ever did was sort of throw notes and write random and sort of compose with uh, a sequence of chords that had some chance in it. And the truth is that every composition, every creation that I ever did had kind of like a, a new entry point, you know, like on one hand, yes, of course, with your life, being a musician, you you develop systems you develop techniques you develop quicker entry ideas strategies whatever but i found also that i'm not i don't work well with too much predefined stuff i need to mm-hmm. uh, to sort of like to get into stuff anew um, every class is a new class every every creation with people is a new, is a new creation every creation alone is a new collaboration with the with the instruments it's a new collaboration with technology. is a collaboration with the environment. You know, like you, you basically collaborate anew. You negotiate constantly. Another another interesting thing I found when I was studying composition in New York is that uh, often if I have an idea about, you know, a uh, composition, there is always a, a, a crap composition that happens first. <laughs>
1: yeah, I you needs, mean.
2: I need to get through it and then I get to get the it good out one. Of the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. And uh and it's funny, and, and you know, like uh, at some point I, I said, like, okay, let's just get quickly through the crap one. I, I won't give too much attention to it. I'll just do something, you know, just like four bars. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes these were actually the better ones, you know. So you don't even know, like. Yeah. But uh, I remember a particularly funny, like, lesson in, in that. I, I when I was still sort of making my way into the world of electroacoustics, and I was submitting things to competitions, to festivals, and I had a, a commission from CBC um, to do like a piece. I can't remember how it happened exactly if I proposed or maybe NASA came to me. NASA, is the uh, New Adventures in Sound Art in Toronto. Um, mm. But um, I wanted to do an interreligious piece. I worked like for six months recording in churches, in uh, Buddhist centers, in synagogues, in, 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 in uh, mosques actually more outside of mosques, um, in, in Jaffa, Ethiopian church in Jerusalem. It was really, I had interviews with priests. I worked in a soup kitchen, you know, and recorded there. Like, I, it was a very meaningful hmm. uh, experience. And I worked a long time on that and it sort of generated pieces that are an inter interreligious kind of mix uh, of, of radio, radio pieces, more than electroacoustics. I mean, there were electroacoustic and there were definitely sound involved, but the, uh, there were a very clear, also textual uh, narrative in that. And I was really proud of how meaningful it was. And I remember sending that to the then the most important uh, festival competition, in the field, the Bourge, and it didn't make it anywhere. Um, it did play, you know, at, at, at the NASA festival, uh, so it didn't not do well but you know the, the bourge was kind of like the the top uh, opportunity and he didn't get it and then i uh i said okay screw that <laughs> I, I like i did a piece that took me two hours to 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 make and it was called gastrointestinal disorder it was just uh, basically a big fart with sound you know like and i <laughs> i sent this to to bourge and this one got a mention i said okay so that's, that, that shows you, you know, like you can sort of spend six months on something that you feel f- so full of, you know, like meaning. Right. <laughs> or I can do a fart piece. Oh, and man. <laughs> I get that. I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's something about uh, authenticity, you know, like it's not, it's not, uh, I'm not saying that seriousness
0: can't be authentic, but sometimes we were too serious. <laughs> hmm that I wanted to ask you something about your career aspect. So, like, it takes a specific type of person to, to be an educator. And um, and you, you hold many roles now at Concordia, such as uh, associate professor, chair of the music department. You know, congratulations to that. Thank you. Uh, co-director of the park, but it didn't start off like that. Can you give us a little summary of your background yeah. in, in this institution over the time you spent there? Yes.
2: Um, interestingly, Concordia felt like, home very quickly. You know, like, I've gone through a a whole, my educational journey was not a quick one at all. I did three years of jazz degree, then three years of classical, bachelor's, then I went to two years of a PhD in New York that didn't quite work out. Then I went to Montreal, studied a year in music technique, then went and studied seven years of PhD at Boston University. Like, you know, it adds up to 16 years of being a student. So -hmm. I've been around, (laughs) and I never felt at home anywhere. Like really? Yeah. I mean I was there was a lot of joy in those studies. Um I never felt like I didn't want to be there or anything, you know, like I, I, I appreciated every second, you know, in every one of these places. But I never felt at home. It was always it always felt like I was an an alien, you know, sort of uh doing my best to to fit in, to to be validated, you know, even like, you know, it's kind of like somebody who comes from the outside and wants wants an in kind of thing. And I excelled. Don't get you know. I'm, I'm not saying that I uh, I didn't, but it was a lot of uh, hard work, but a lot of joy as well. I, I enjoyed every moment. Like a, it felt like a privilege, you know, that I I'm allowed, you know. And I think there is a history in that. I think too, which has to do with um, I think growing up in Israel, you always feel, especially when you're I guess when your uh, origins are from an Arabic um, world, like the in my case Yemenite Jewish that the culture that you come from is not as high not as high culture as like the one that you study in school which is all european you know primarily european and you always feel like you kind of like you you need to to study hard to even validate your your existence within this world of thought right and culture um, and you, you don't even think about it you just do it. it it's kind of like oh of course you know Yemenite Poetry is not really deep. You know, that's, of course, it's bullshit, right? But that's how you grow up believing. So I think going to university for me was just like a feeling of, of a privilege that I, I was even accepted, you know? So... There was a good side to that, which made me enjoy, it helped me enjoy like everything. You know, and now I know that it's uh, it's not right. You know that uh, there is so much depth and interest in uh, in my origins and in basically in every culture. You know, the the sort of Western culture has this effect on so many places around the world. It's kind of beyond the colonization that happened. You know, through imperialism, there is this colonization of culture and, and thought. That happens everywhere, you know, like um, in Asia, Southeast Asia, um, in Africa, of course. And So yeah. okay, I went far. Your, your question was much, uh, <laughs> much worse. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> but, go as
1: far as you want to go.
2: <laughs> but basically, when I came to Concordia, weirdly, I, you know, I was I was given an opportunity of, of like teaching the the first ever ear training for electroacoustic class at Concordia. Mm. I jumped on it, you know, like with. A lot of happiness and joy, and like had, having no idea what, what it even means, you know, like what, it, what shape it's going to take. And, and uh, I, of course, you know, experimented with it. You know, like I remember that I was, was kind of worried before the first classes, like, you know, like the fear of just doing something anew. Am, am I going to be a good teacher? You know, am, am I going to just be exposed for knowing nothing? You know, like, uh, and I remember what I, my other self told me, just like, chill. It's just people. It's a group of people. You're hanging out, exploring together. You know, like, what, what's not fun about this? You know, just like uh, you listen, you discover together. And, you know, I allowed myself creativity in that, especially because it was a new f- course, new field. You know, the, the person who brought this course to existence is Kevin Austin, unsurprisingly. You know, he's the, he's the brain behind actually starting electroacoustic air training at Concordia um, mm-hmm. because he felt it was really necessary. And because of that, I was, I was able to join in and, and start sort of this journey, which also eventually led to what my, I did with my uh, doctorate at Boston University. But I, I was very creative. Like, I, I was reading Al, Al, Al Bregman's, you know, auditory scene analysis book. And it's not an ear training book. It's basically a, a collection of uh, auditory perception studies, you know, that put together a kind of a model or a theory of yeah. understanding how our brain organizes sound. And it was really interesting when I t- when I told Al Bregman that uh, I was doing ear training based on auditory analysis. He said, "Oh, it's uh, interesting, you know, like he never heard of this, you know, like." And, and and this is also Kevin, you know, Kevin who kind of like uh, we thought, well, ear training for electroacoustics, auditory analysis. So basically, all I all I knew is this: electroacoustics, ear training, auditory analysis. That's all I had to to go with. <laughs> <laughs> mm. And uh, of course, Kevin had much more to, to, you know, much more years of thought about that. But he was he was kind enough not to throw it on me and sort of allow me to uh, to discover it on my own with the electroacoustic students. And what I was amazed was that uh, it just felt at home. Like I felt it wherever my brain wants to go with this was okay. I never felt that in an academic institution before.
1: That's very special for sure. For sure. I can really relate to that. As someone who's attended Concordia, I felt very just right from the jump. So I yeah. I can really relate to what you're saying when you, when you say that. So that that was it. That was
2: 2005. And I realized mm-hmm. I'm home. And somehow wow. I knew. Like, you know, obviously I was just teaching one course on, on a contract. You know, it wasn't like I had any anything to hold on to in terms of like actual position. You know, right. or anything. Just, uh, but, I, but I knew. I felt the energy. I felt this was home. And, um, right. And often this is not how it works. With, um, you know, after people, I didn't even have a PhD. Like, I, I didn't even start it. I just started in two thousand six. So often, when people do a PhD and and look for an academic job, they search far and wide, you know, until they find their place. For me, it was kind of like the opposite. I was home. I knew where I wanted to be and where where I, 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 I kind of knew where I was gonna be, you <laughs> hmm. know, like without. Having any actual, you know, um, something to support it except for feeling. And uh, thankfully, it did work, you know. And yeah. um, I taught four years as a part time, you know, which is kind of like every year you apply for, uh, for courses and you hope to get them uh, based yeah. on seniority and all that. And thankfully, everything worked out. Uh, Mike Pinson was instrumental in, in guiding me through this process. He was the one who actually invited me to apply to begin with. Um, oh, really?
1: Yeah. Huh. Mike- wow. That's really interesting. That's yeah, Mike. Uh,
2: Mike is uh, is is uh, is a dear friend, and uh, I, I dedicated you know a, a, thank, a big thank you to him in my dissertation as well. And like, it's, uh, I, good. I admire good. this guy. It's like his uh, his heart, his brain, his teaching is 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 wonderful. Of course. And uh, after that, I Kevin went on sabbatical. I did. I got a, I applied for an LTA for which is like a one year kind of uh, full time. It's also the same time i was doing my phd and i was my second daughter was born it was a very full year full of concerts and the oscar peterson concert hall and it was it was massive mm. oh, that's very special yeah
0: i was really curious about well your most recent role uh, as um, as the chair of the music department you know uh what have you learned uh, about yourself about the position you know what what have you learned about yourself as you embarked on this project
2: yeah um you know I see this position as a as a service primarily. It's a, it's like a designated okay. driver kind of thing um, because it is you know it is a privilege you know like I'm I'm very grateful for it. Uh, it's also a responsibility, and I think it's really important. It's it's a designated driver in the way that you are given the keys to drive the department forward. And to me, it's very important you, you do it without running anybody over. You know, so, uh, which is very easy to do. If you try to do too much too quickly, you know, like, uh, there's a lot of people in there, you know, like basically, uh, heading a department, this is the first position that kind of like, I guess, it's the first place where you have a supervisory type of uh, connection with people across different functions, right? You know, faculty and staff, you know, different unions, students, of course. So, it's it's really the first place where you actually sort of mix at the university level. So you're you're at that point where you sort of care for everybody and their needs and their responsibilities, and at the same time you're the position, uh, the, the point of connection between everybody in the department at the and the university. Right. So it is really a designated driver uh, kind of role, and there's a lot to learn there in terms of like balance and. Uh, and vision, you know, so you definitely have a vision about what you can do with uh, with with how how you can move forward with different things in the department, but you have to take it carefully because you don't want to either cancel people's work or overstep or or do something that because people have been at the university for years and have developed certain amazing things that you don't even know, right you know that uh, that work in certain ways, and there is a whole it's a very interesting ecosystem. So it's it's kind of a it's a I love the challenge of having to, to find um, the right move the right decision you know like every moment it's it's kind of high stress in that way it's the first time mm-hmm. ever I, I got uh, anxiety medicine I never even thought about this <laughs> until now but uh, it's uh, it it is a uh, I'm I'm enjoying it but as I said in the beginning I'm enjoying my me time on, on the weekend more than ever. <laughs> Of course,
1: good. I think it's such a different step yeah. from, from teaching because Anthony and I had you as an ear training teacher or as a, a laptop orchestra conductor. And you know, mm-hmm. I remember leaving your lectures, very inspired and feeling full of creative ideas. So I want to know as someone who teaches all those different types of classes and that are very diverse, how do you go about inspiring your students to strive in the creation of electroacoustic music? Cause I think you know how to inspire very well and it's basically i want i want to know how you do that because it's not easy to do but it comes very naturally to you you see what i mean yeah thank you for
2: saying it's a, it means a lot and uh, of course i you know i, I don't at, at the foundation of of teaching for me is joy you know like yeah. it's, it's so I, I don't separate things in the brain before i i go back to the to the basics which is joy it's kindness. It's uh, um, a flexible but safe environment for collective, or a new word I, I kind of uh, I, I've I've been using that I like more than collective is multiplicitus <laughs> uh, exploration. Because collective means like we you know we serve the collective, but or you know something like that. But multiplicitous is more about we are very mul- you know different. We are very multiple, but we can still be here together in the same space. And we, we don't need consensus. We just need to be able to to do stuff with each other, near each other, respect each other, give each other safety and flexibility to, to to be what you need. And it's not that easy to 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 make happen. And I think most of the time, I don't, you know, I don't I don't experience this at a at the perfect <laughs> flow um, very often. Uh, but this is the ideal of the environment. You know, and from there, I find it's it's not all on me. You know, like do we, we're in a we're 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 in a group doing stuff, right? And um, mm-hmm. and everybody has a say in that group. Yes, we are, there are different functions. You know, so like as a, as a teacher, I'm a designated driver again over there. You know, it, but it, but it is still it's not it's not my journey, right? Um, it's right. I am part of it. It's my journey as well. But you know, it's not it's not only where I want to go. <laughs>
1: I think and, you're trying to say like, it's bigger than you. As the individual, it's the whole, you know, I think.
2: Yes, but every one of us in this mix has, has a big journey on our own, right? Mm-hmm. And Very true. So um, beyond that, yes, then it comes to the structures of how you do stuff. But I think that when, it, when this is there and there is a conversation and there is flexibility, the structure can be built together or can be at least sort of adapted, adjusted together and... The structure itself is flexible. It's it's not like a firm, which which is sometimes t- tricky, you know. And I know that because I, and I've through the years of teaching whatever I taught, I've always looked for the a good balance between structure and openness and flexibility. And sometimes I failed. I gave too much flexibility. Sometimes maybe I tried too much structure. That happened too when I was having too many sort of very very regular assignments that at some point became a little boring. Um, so it's right. a constant iterative process of finding. This good balance between the flexibility that allows individuals to grow, and but enough structure to can actually know that you're moving anywhere. Because without structure, you're just kind of like roaming around. Everybody going in in the forest and disappearing, and you know, <laughs> um, so that happens too. So, mm-hmm. but then it's always about something human, right? So in ear training, it's a very internal, very internal process. It's very abstract and it's very inside us. You know, like we we'll learn to shape our experience. And to have more control over its boundaries, its direction, its focus, right and this is kind of a very abstract thing to do, and it has it requires this discussion you know at the human level of, of actual experience and then there is the external part of working with others at the laptop orchestra you know you you kind of you you depend on on your internal skills to be able to hear what's going on right uh, mm. but but there is an element there of of Listening and supporting others and then taking courage to take leadership and, and you know, and, and see how this happens, you know. So right, right, this, right. It's, I think it's a good combination of things, you know, like, uh, like the internal and external kind of aspects of it's very simplistic somewhat to, you know, because we are, you no know, one, one. one thought that is always on my mind about anything is like, it's not that simple. just like in general about about stuff in life and anyone anyone says anything my my brain goes to "Ah, it's not that simple (laughs) because we are you know very multiplicitous we are very rhizomatic and network we are conflicting in in ourselves with tension between forces inside ourselves all the time and there's a lot of overlap but it's nice to map it we say one it deals with the internal one deals with the external and you know and and it's kind of like nice to look at it and, and gives a end course for conversation and thought.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that when you talk about, it's not that simple, I can relate to that on a, a different level after one you of doing this podcast with Anthony and now with Caduce, we think like we we try to figure one thing out and it's like, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And we, you know, I think it's so a part oh. of sound, you know, it's just, it's embedded in that and you realize that at every single roadblock that you go through um i think that i i now want to transition more into the the projects that you do we have a whole section dedicated to uh clark i really want to get into that but before clark we got to talk about 60 by 60. Uh, what an amazing festival Uh, what a great opportunity for the dance department and the music department to come together i really want to go over that one and then if there's other projects outside of Clark that you want to highlight please do but let's give the due to 60 by 60 yeah. because that is yeah, one of the greatest 60. experiences an electroacoustic student can get. I, I have some news about it. <laughs> Please. Oh. Um, spill the beans. <laughs> 60 by 60
2: is no more. Oh. No. Really? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry to say like 60 by 60 you know you've you've experienced it it's been it's been a lot of fun. Um, Yeah, like 120 students or so, you know, musicians and dancers and theater putting together this one hour of like one every minute or something different happening, different choreography, different composer. And it's been a lot of fun and especially a lot of fun for audience. I know people really enjoyed this one. And I'm a little sad that it happened sort of COVID put a stop to it first. But then Mm -hmm. although there was... Uh, dance students wanted to try to do a TikTok kind of version of that because TikToks are like one-minute clips. I remember
1: it. seeing that on the mailing list, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it, they yeah.
2: started, but it didn't actually uh, lift off eventually. But uh, this year, the dance department has changed um, with a new chair, with a wonderful guy, Jens, and um, Sylvie, yeah. who was uh, sort of championing the 60 by sixteen until now she retired. And Jens and Noah, the chair of theater, we sat and, and with Angelique Wilkie, who's a dance professor I work with very closely, um, we sat together and thought about the value of 60 by 60 for like pedagogically. And Jens really wanted to, to re examine, and Noah also, because it's been, well, with us, it's been very easy. At the electroacoustics, we just compose a piece and then you've, it makes its way to stage with this amazing you know, uh, <laughs> realization of movement and, and, and fun and joy and drama. Um, on, for us, it, it's been really good. For dancers and and theater, uh, it wasn't as organized within the courses, which made it a little hard sometimes. Um, I think it was, you know, I think it was wonderful, but uh, but at the same time, I'm I'm I also want to do something that is more pedagogically um, valuable for everybody, that everybody loves what they're doing, and like uh, I understand that. Yeah, so we decided to go another way um, eventually and um, and do a course together. So there's going to be an improvisation course that is open for dance, theater, and music students. Because improvisation is the one thing that's sort of like uh, uh, is a shared... The um, crossover. Yeah. yeah.
0: Do you mean I like should. a live kind of environment?
2: Yeah, like it'd be a classroom. For
0: both the musician. Oh, wow, that's really cool. So That's really cool. So
2: pedagogically, that made more sense equally kind of like uh, equitably for all um, three types of uh, areas. So next year is going to be a, a, a shared course of, uh, of improv course for dance, music, and, and theater students. I don't know how it will look like, but, you know, and it's going to be every year going to move from one department to another. Next year is at the dance department. That's
0: but, really exciting. Yeah.
2: So great. something will come, you know, like, I don't know like in terms of uh, a creation that will be like 60 by 60 in the, in, in, the, in that it, uh, involves all three departments. But um, I don't know if 60 by 60 as it has been will we'll come back. But it, I, I, I did enjoy a, a lot of like, you know, it's, I, I waited for it every year because it was just like a fun show, like every minute something new. Um, there was yeah. a lot of really fun and funny things and very um, abstract. And like, it was interesting to see the abstract electroacoustic pieces um, with drama that was sometimes very fun and funny. And then Mm. with dance that were sometimes more abstract as well. But this combination of all of these things just made for a really nice kind of like balanced show where every minute something new came and it was just light, you know, light and and, and impressive. And like, uh, yeah, it it was wonderful. But uh, something new will come.
0: Yeah, of course. I, of I really course. looked forward every year to the 60 by 60, like submitting or even just showing up to the performances. Yeah. My, my first 60 by 60, I accidentally <laughs> submitted. I, I didn't remember even this. I, <laughs> remember I didn't even this. realize that I submitted <laughs> it. And um, I okay. hear my piece there. It was, and, you well, loved, and Yeah, it was it cool.
2: Was to, yeah, it was a good experience, though, to see it. Yeah, and then...
0: Yeah. There was another year where I just didn't even submit at all, and it was selected. So that was funny. It was yeah, cool.
2: there is a bank of pieces, you know, from, yeah. you know that is like from previous years as well, and I don't know. Like there, there we may still do some stuff with them, you know. Okay. Like,
1: um, I mean, they're there for that, right? So yeah. I don't see yeah. why you wouldn't to keep a bank of them. That's really cool. That's really cool. Uh let's let's talk about. Uh, a very, very exciting portion of the interview for myself and Anthony. This is a class that we yeah, truly since we're talking enjoyed. About
0: performance.
1: Yeah, exactly. So let's just talk about CLORC, the Concordia Laptop Orchestra. Uh, I'll, I'll just open it up with this question What was your inspiration and your motivation for even creating such a class? Because the, f- the minute I walked into that class, it felt magical. Uh, <laughs> like, please tell us everything that's on your mind regarding that. That's like very. At a very important point, I want to hit on this interview. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it was 2010, and there was still kind of like a trend of live electronics, laptop uh, performance, uh, sort of, you know, popping all over. There was not a lot, but quite a, like, there were quite a few laptop orchestras. In 2005, it's when Princeton Laptop Orchestra started, uh, and one or two years after the Stanford Laptop Orchestra, and actually by the same person, Gay Wang, who went from Princeton and moved to Stanford, opened. So they were kind of similar but uh, and very different from from Clark. But there was a thing that was beginning there. Uh, Cybernetic Orchestra at McMaster with David Ogborn started in 2010 as well, I think. So it felt like there was an opportunity there for for something uh, cool and... I thought in the electroacoustic studies, there was it was also an opportunity for expanding on the live electronics. that was just starting to happen in two in two like in the first year electroacoustic class, um, which was right. in, in smaller groups. And it's it's you know there is something very cool and very new at the time for electroacoustic and studio composers, right? You know because uh, we spend a lot of time in the internal, <laughs> in the, you know, with ourselves in the studio exploring. You know, designing sound, trying different processes, you know, really playing uh, with, like, it's almost like practicing your instrument, right? You know, just like you do it, it's a very alone thing. And playing with others in real time demands something, primarily demands a kind of fluency in your, in your skills and in sound, in real time sound design and, and, and performance. So it's kind of like you've learned all the grammar, you've learned all the vocabulary, or enough at least now go out there and, and have conversations and uh,
1: oh i like the way you said <laughs> that yeah that's yeah. very perfect this the way you put it yeah.
2: yeah and and i heard that from like from students early like i did some interviews with the uh, students uh, and you know they were say they were writing like uh, all these concepts that we learned in in 205 and 305 in the electroacoustic classes and in, in about texture about you know like uh, all of that was interesting in theory but we actually lived it, and suddenly it all made sense when we had to sort of be part of it in a, in a live performance. So I, it took me a while to to get a good understanding of what's available, you know, like in in this in this platform, both as an ensemble, as a creative entity, and as a as a class, because it, it is both, right? You know, as, as a as a creative entity, it performs all over the world in telematic and sometimes, you know, on location, like it's. Recently it performed in the Cambridge Festival. It performed in the the hong kong uh, based uh, free space jazz festival, which was really high prestige and wonderful and oh. really a good experience. And we did that uh, just a few months ago. This was telematic, but so it has it's become this thing that is known out there, you know, an invited festival and stuff. But at the same time, it is a class, mm. you know, and we we learn a lot of things in in this environment. But what we learn, like I mentioned before, it really depends on the group, you know, and, uh, and always trying to, to find a balance for all the voices, you know, in, in the group to, uh, to have an expression. It doesn't always happen often, you know, either not feel safe enough or just like sort of getting being swallowed in the crowd because it is a lot of people. It's the largest orchestra I know. Like as far, I don't know any laptop orchestra. that's 25, to 30 people. It's, uh,
1: right. Yeah, no, it was always big sounds, and I feel like every Reaper channel needed at least three limiters each, you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. And you know, int-
2: interestingly, because you've been in the orchestra, and you, you remember how hard it is to hear yourself. You know, yes. like, uh, like the monitoring is, is an issue that is always, yeah. is always a consideration. During COVID, when the orchestra went telematic, this was fixed. Everybody could hear themselves just fine. You know, like at, at first I started in smaller groups of five, six people because mm-hmm. I didn't know how telematics would work with 25 people. But when we tried full orchestra, it was marvelous. It was actually the best ever because of that. People could hear themselves and could mix. Everybody could mix uh, just as much as they wanted. So that's something to take away and, and bring into, uh, into the physical domain. We'll see how this works. Do you think that's it'll absolutely. ever go back to the physical domain? or? Yeah, last year we did. Last year, we were first okay. First uh, half, we did two telematic things. Uh, one at the Cambridge Festival, um, and one uh, just like a Concordia performance. And then right. we did two performances that were on location, mm-hmm. although in a mixed kind of way. Interestingly, one was wild. One was wild. It was, uh, it was in the EV building, uh, the 10th floor. It was part of my other project that I wanted to mention. Uh, my Rise project. Uh, the Rise is the is a cataclysmic mini opera project. It's uh, been going on with like about twenty people, and every year, if if uh, if it if it matches, like the opera the mini operas production or creation, use or collaborate with the laptop orchestra, and that's what we did last year with this dream. Uh, mm. Like it it was. A piece proposed by Valentina Plata, with an electroacoustic student, um, and she wanted to do a, an enactment of a lucid dream. And we, I like that. Yeah, we we, and the idea was, it's kind of like an opera, but a very wild Dada type of opera. Okay. Um, the idea was that we were talking about uh, crisis related to technology, you know, and, and the various aspects of technological crisis could be anywhere from ai takeover to in this case was more like kind of the other looking at it from the other side technology and surveillance is basically taking over everything our imagination mm. is no longer ours we don't have the freedom you know to to just be unseen the only place where our imagination is fully free and 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 ours is in the lucid in a lucid dream mm. um, so we were enacting that by ha- having like 40 people in three rooms, everything was all the, everything was wireless. So singers with wireless microphones, the laptop orchestra was all wireless. No matter where you played from, you everything was heard in all of the space. Uh, people were setting up inside tents, you know, with all their gear. Um, there were like there was a fortune teller walking around. There was uh, one of the laptop orchestra performers was actually painting on a canvas. There was everybody was in costume. You know, there were, like, amazing costumes. Uh, there was, uh, like, masks that were created for the event by one of uh, my research assistants, Una, hanging mm-hmm. on the wall. And inside these masks, there was a Bluetooth speaker reading lines from dream journals. So you'd walk in the, in the past, and, you know, the, this mask will talk to you from the wall, saying something from, from a dream. Um, oh, that's trippy. <laughs> this whole thing was a mad, mad trip. Like, 40 people, everybody doing whatever they want to do. And the laptop orchestra was part of that, and it was like very, very wild
0: sonically, very wild visually. Um, That's really cool. That's really cool. Oh, that maybe it's just me, but I don't know. I feel like our our collective passion or even obsession with uh, sound uh, has its roots for our love in music. And I, I think that Clerk really expresses that. Can you tell us uh, what have been some notable music tendencies or technological innovations or even artists that you've seen arise from uh, from events like Clerk?
1: Yeah,
2: um, I think the uh, um, the, the things that emerge in chore are like are so many, and I think that uh, one interesting thing that happens is that like we do very highly technological designs basically in every performance. It, you know like one thing I've realized really works well for us every year is like short term deadlines with very high ambition. You know that's kind of like the the uh, the, the formula for this madness, you know, like for these really wild innovative things to happen, overly prepared and overly planned things don't seem to get as much creativity and as much actually success as, as you'd think in, in, this, uh, in this context. So with that, I think we don't really think too much about the innovations in terms of like the tech in terms of like uh, the creation, like or not in a sustainable way. I mean, we can go back and sort of analyze things, and I'm actually doing this right now because I'm writing a, a book chapter about orchestration in the laptop orchestra, and I sort of like it. It just forces me to to go back and and think about all of these things that we're doing musically that are, that need some definition. Um, and it's a, it's a really interesting exercise. This book is it's the Oxford Handbook of Orchestration, which is like, it's not elect- electroacoustics, it's orchestration overall. And the chapter that I was invited to write is about or- orchestrating the laptop orchestra, which is kind of cool because this has not been written about anywhere. Um, so it forces me to go and actually answer your question, you know, like about how we, what kind of uh, musical arrangements have emerged, you know, mm-hmm. in, in all that. But for the most part, we don't think about it. You know, like no, we, we don't, it, and we don't even think about the the the, te- the tech. We're doing like massively complex tech. We don't even think about it because it's just like a channel for us for the creative, artistic, musical thing that we're trying to do. Yeah, mm-hmm. but if we try to analyze it, I think we've learned. You know, we build textures. You know, in 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 kind of like organized way. You know, like we have those textures that are. You know. Well, drone is kind of like a, a given, you know, like a, I remember when I cl- played at Akusma, you know, so like people came to me and said, because we played an acoustic performance rather than a, a drone performance at Akusma. And it was kind of like weird because ac- ac- acousmatic performances are very linear and very kind of like temporal and causal. Like something happens, something happens as a result, right? It's very different right. from these very drony kind of like, uh, I don't know, pads and spaces that are very slow to evolve it was like more like an actual composition and people came you know like composers from the conservatoire said how how is it possible how can you have an orchestra play an achismatic piece and it was all improvised but people were ready you know ready to i mean somebody goes like they know to do like at the end you know
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah and there was all your your movements that you would also do you would give us like pointers of like this i remember i mean we're audio only here people but uh uh, you would have put your left hand up and then your right arm like uh, horizontally and then you would just raise it leaning towards your uh, left arm and that would mean like dynamically let's get louder um, and yeah. I think that when you talk about organized textures um, and improvisation with drones
0: Soundspace is proudly sponsored by LESA Audio Technologies Use code SOUNDSPACE for 30% off any purchase Transform your sound with Glow, a mask granulator, or with the modern degradation of Codec. By visiting lasa.io today.
1: It leads me to the next question: How would you describe group improvisation in electroacoustic music? You know, in the in the context of electroacoustic music, and how does it differ from? Anything outside of electroacoustic music and I mean that's basically everything else as far as I'm concerned I think those two are you know they contrast so much and uh, your mindset is plays between the two so I would really be interested to know your answer
2: yeah uh, that's uh, that's a good question and the what you described the sound painting you know this uh, it's a system uh, of, 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 co- of conducting it's, a, it's actually called conduction you know was a good entry point was a really good entry point. Of, uh, I remember, like Kathy Kennedy asked me before the first laptop orchestra, "How are you going to make sure, like, it's not going to be a big ball of noise?" And, and you know that kind of made me think, and that's why I went into into sound painting as a channel because it's it's a way to communicate, centralize kind of the attention of of the improvisation. But I actually moved away from that because after about two years, or or you know maybe more, actually four years, I think, of doing that. As, a, as kind of like a main entry point for, for the laptop orchestra improvisation. I realized that I'm also missing out on the very ground up sort of like, uh, you know, process, which is sometimes more messy and a little more challenging. But until we try to do it, we don't get good ideas of how we can do it. You know, when, right. when, when Clark played in Acquisma, there was no conductor. It was all, you know, just a group in a very balanced collective way coming together and everybody knew their role. Everybody knew, everybody designed their own role. It just worked in the most perfect way it it ever has. And I think what I've discovered through through the years, because right now, um, Clark jumps into music making very quickly. You know, it used to be that uh, it took it some time to figure out how to be together. Now that Cambridge festival performance that I told you about happened in the very first class. Because that was a date. And we just said, like, okay, we're going to do the impossible. Just like the first time we meet, we're going to perform in a, in, a, in a prestigious festival. With 100, Perfect. 100, Why not? 100,000 100, people, you know, like... On Pressure the is on.
0: <laughs> Everybody's watching.
2: <laughs> and, and that was cool. It was cool because yeah. they, they made it happen, and it was great. And I think what, what I've learned, if I simplify or just put it into one pointer, is you got to know what's going on in order to improvise well. So, and yeah. uh, that uh, that I realized was something that held a lot of good improvisation is that most of the time people just had no idea what what the hell is going on? What, 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 is, what are we doing? You know, like, you know, <laughs> and then like after about 15 20 minutes, something ho- sort of emerges and people follow, and then like it all goes well. So, if you can actually make it so that right from the start, everybody knows what's going on, then you don't need to do anything almost. Um, like, it, so strategies for that were like, okay, let's start with one person, one person improvises, improvise yes. for one minute. You know, that, that one person will develop their own story and then everybody would join in either gradually or together or whatever, but they'll join in something coherent. And from when, when that happens, the coherence remains and, and just like, I don't need to tell anyone anything, it just happens. Then what's missing, and that's the other part of this thing, the strategy and improvisation that evolved, is shifts. Because it's very easy to support something that's going on, but how do you go somewhere else? In middle of that. And that requires a lot of uh, a lot of risk, you know, by individuals. You know, like uh, um somebody screaming suddenly. You know, like they could either just be fall on their face, nobody follows, and just they just screamed and nothing happened, or they can have the orchestra support this and sort of build on that, and then it's like, you know. So the being together part now comes in just like that. You know, once we know um how to enter it's it's not work because everybody in the orchestra is already after 2 years of ear training and electroacoustics and like they're very sharp and they're very skilled
0: in their ears and
2: to varying levels yeah. with
0: their tech. I, I thought i thought it was funny what you were saying cuz laptop orchestra is improvisation essentially and uh it reminded me like last week i, w- I went to like a, an improv show where the viewers me were able to contribute so I actually went up on stage and and was able to perform some some uh, improv with some complete strangers and like you said like the key to improv is absolutely listening to what's going on around you because if you're not listening then there's no communication.
2: Yeah. And of course what you're telling me is a is a very well-rooted tradition of jam session in jazz. Yeah. You know like so that's this like this open jam jam sessions is something that that's existed in jazz forever. Which is which is wonderful, kind of a community. I know if you know that uh, the Concordia Jazz, they, they have like uh, every Wednesday, right, an open jam session at the uh, upstairs um, bar. Um, anyone can mm. come in, and play, um, and uh, it's it's really it's really wonderful actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is a lot of uh, I mean imp- improvisation, obviously in the laptop orchestra is. Has other pr- kind of parameter of, of sound, you know, because it's it's not about not that jazz is not about sound. Jazz is very much about sound as well. Sure. But in jazz, you have swing, you have particular harmonic language, particular phrasal melodic language, um, and and rhythms. In electroacoustics, is something else. But the culture of improvising and and supporting each other. Um, is is very similar, um, and in some ways, it's for jazz. It's just like in their bones. For us, as the people, it's a it's a discovery, mm-hmm. and it's like it's an opening up. Like we open our, our heart, you know. Yeah. Um, so th- that's cool. I didn't. Where is this uh, uh, thing that happened, by the way? Ah, uh, it
0: was in Toronto. It was the the second city. There was just oh, yeah. um there was just a, a, an improv show that that happened, and um, I went. You know, I, I went to the show and put your name in a hat, and they pick me pick my name out of a hat and they're just like okay they're like
1: go. oh this guy's got an electroacoustic bachelor's <laughs> degree let's pick his go name. do some clerk
0: no i'm kidding <laughs> so what, what, what go you, ahead for what did you play was there a sound <laughs> no sound no making? no sound it was just it's, it's more it was just pure cool. improv just up on stage yeah, like theater theater like theater yeah Amazing. theater yeah sorry i uh, i should have been more clear about that
2: yeah and you but know, it is like, connected very and i just had an event, a closed event with my rise group, the opera group, a mm-hmm. um, couple of weeks ago. That we did exactly that. Like we had, it wasn't music. It was three different types of play that is improvisatory. One of the people in in, in the uh, in the group, she's doing a PhD in dance, um, Danielle, and she's developed this uh, practice of tethering. She comes from circus. She was a uh, she was an aerialist in Cirque du Soleil, and she does like now. She developed it. Took the fabrics of the uh, of you know what you usually hang from the ceiling, and instead she did, she does like horizontal tethering. So like now it's like it's it, it, instead of tethering it to to uh, or rigging it to the ceiling, it's it's tethered to another person. So people in a group with a very very long fabric are basically improvising with each other by movement only so pulling pushing and basically it's like it's a very beautiful kind of process of very somatic very physical so that was one thing and very different type of improvisation then another uh, member of rise was a visiting phd uh, student from glasgow adriana did uh, this beautiful thing with with vocal improvisation that is non linguistic so like you know basically speaking conversing in in different kind of gibberish and, and gestural sounds and and with movement. And that was kind of like very open and very freeing, also very stressful at the same time. Right, for and, uh, <laughs> and then we did a, a, a DVT session with uh, Mira, who's a drama therapist who does DVT is developmental trans- transformation. It's a process of, it can be therapy, but it doesn't have to be. OK. It's basically play. It's like taking adults into a play situation like kids. So we imagine things, we draw things, we you know like uh, you know like she would say something like uh, you know I don't know like a mushroom on the floor and you know and she'll say, she'll start sort of like talking like like kids do like um, like make believe kind of thing yeah. right you know like you you look at something oh look at this mushroom it's huge and then like you know you go under the mushroom and like it's all in mushroom. so like you do it as adults that's it's, a lot of fun wonderful
0: yeah you let the child out so we did,
2: yeah
1: yeah um, exactly exactly so I think this
2: is. This kind of stuff is good for, for clorkies as well, because one thing that we aren't is somatic. <laughs> we're very brainy. You know, we don't actually use our body a lot in our, in our performances and uh, our improvisation. We're, we're stuck in the cyber, cyber world. Like, our, we are actually inside the computers when we improvise in our ears. You know, like, we're in a very abstract uh, domain of thought and hearing. And it's and it shows because you look on people on 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 uh, laptop orchestra performance they're often sitting very crouched like you know like insects on uh, <laughs> they don't look very you know like very free in terms of the body but we're very no, wild no no they look, look very
1: concentrated yeah
2: yeah but we're <laughs> yeah, deep yeah. somewhere in the abstract you know and then we're together absolutely yeah.
1: absolutely And I think deep in the abstract is the perfect segment to the next question I want to ask you it's all about mindset. Outside of what you've described already with Chloric and all the other projects, what would you say is the mindset required to create electroacoustic music? You know, I think it's, it's many things. The first
2: thing, uh, I think it's like it's like a, a sonic Play-Doh. You know, like you, <laughs> you, you, it's like it's that kind of free and, and, and formless and you can form it in the way that you want as long as, you know, you create something, but you you can play with it, it can shape it, you can change it from one form to another form. I think with skill and time, it becomes more like clay, you know, in a way that it is kind of like uh, more precise, more detailed. But the point I'm trying to make make here is that uh, it's, yes, there are traditions and there are different styles of people doing things. There are people who come from soundscapes, there are people who come from acoustics, you know, and each one kind of develop its own language, but the basic of all of them is this you are designing your sound and then you're creating, you know, designing it at a micro level, you know, how you layer things to make them sound in a certain way, how you shape their beginnings and endings um and the way they behave in the middle, but then also in a larger scale, you shape them into textures, you shape them into sort of interesting relationships, you make a narrative of some type, you know, like but it's not like music, it doesn't have to come with discrete you know sort of boundaries like notes or or meter right and, you know of course it's not that simple i'll say again of course in music you can go you can go very electroacoustic with instruments right and uh, and i find that uh, when when you guys you know like uh, the electroacoustic uh, people like us go into the in the more instrumental composition classes I've seen the, the most amazing pieces in instrumental compositions come from electroacoustic students because of this kind of like you you approach this world from the world of of sound and from the world of sort of playing with you know with uh, with the parameters of sound uh, with the experience in timbre in space you know and space is a pretty deep thing that, so uh, deep you know I've I've been recently thinking about the laptop orchestra orchestration really thinking a lot about space. And especially because the loudspeaker is a very limited, like, bodyless type of sound, right? You know, if you compare an, a clarinet coming from a loudspeaker or clarinet coming from a clarinet, <laughs> they don't, they're not the same. Even though, like, you know, and, and one has a body, one doesn't, right? It doesn't matter how clean, how clear and wonderful the speaker is. One actually has a body, it's there. The other is like a ghost. And I'm I'm not even talking about... A stereo image, just coming from one speaker, it still doesn't have the same presence that a real instrument near you has. And I I thought a lot about this, you know, like why? So in some ways, it's a limitation of this laptop orchestra, or basically the loudspeaker orchestra, if you you want to call it that, it doesn't have to be a laptop as long as it comes from a loudspeaker. It loses its body. (laughs) But at the same time, you have such freedom to take this ghostly sounds and spread them in such cool ways, sounds to the ceiling, you know, <laughs> speakers facing the ceiling, you know, speakers at different levels, you know, like around you, like doing the dome. So you have the, the freedom of this virtual world to play with. But mm-hmm. one, th- one thing you, we, we can't quite get to is physical presence. <laughs> Absolutely. And let's, uh, remember we had a, a show with uh, at, at McGill one time um and we were considering oh, but we really want to finish the piece like you know very strong how can we how can we f- really immerse people with our sound at the end we can't you know we can't make a big sound it will really immerse everybody we'll just bring a real symbol you know just to bang it at the end you know or something <laughs> like that because something and and i have some ideas about why it's like that from the speakers but uh but i think it's less important right now. What's important is that it's a different mode of uh, of spatial arrangement. And as a sound designers, electroacoustic people, we think about these things, and you know, we we can enjoy the the this, the spatial aspect of instruments versus speakers, and have that as a as a contrast, right? We can have the the spatial difference between a very immersive uh, reverberant sound, sort of flushed into the into the walls, compared to very you know pinpointed point source. These kind of things that only us think about, you know, like, uh, and but they're extreme, they have extreme power on our experience of the of, of, listener, right? And um, as musicians, you don't typically think about that. You do later, later on, but we, we come to sound from the, from this point.
1: Absolutely. And I think when you talk about all of these different spectrums where electroacoustic music can be manipulated, whether it be dynamically and spatially, I think that one. Element I've always noticed in electroacoustic music versus any sort of uh, organized sound is the uh, unpredictability of it and how it constantly evolves. There's a sonic idea, and it's a uh, uh, Danielle Savage spoke a lot about this uh, in her interview. I wanted to know like how do you go about preserving unpredictability in your creative uh, sonic ideas? You see what I mean? Because mm-hmm. it's, it has to always evolve, and it's always going to be on a new level when you want to. Evolve that sound. So, how do you go about that? Yeah, and I, and I think
2: and I, I think by unpredictability, you're talking about the I don't know the element of uh, surprise. Surprise, yeah. So, which I think is not completely unpredictability. I mean, if if it's unpredictable completely, it's, it's so we, I think I think it's more drama, mm. you know, if uh, if like in a way that uh, which is a, a mix of predictable and unpredicted, <laughs> you know, kind of like you right. develop you developing expectations, and then you don't meet them, and like you keep it's like a good storytelling. Right, um, so that's it's a good question. There are many strategies to do that, both at the micro sound design level, because if a sound is not interesting internally, um, then it just dies, um, and at the level of composition in, in time, right? Um, and I think with live coding, I find this to be a, a particularly interesting uh, challenge that I enjoy playing with, because when you live code, typically it doesn't have to be. Of course, there are other other ways to do it, but typically you build. Uh, you work with a loop kind of process, right? So you code something, and then it goes into a loop. It gives you time while it's still playing to start changing things. But sometimes it can get very, if it if it takes you too long to change or to add a layer or to do whatever, it goes into this stagnant mode, right? So what you do in live coding is you, you begin by already writing uh, uh, a code, that has some algor- algorithmic kind of like uh, variation in it, right? Mm-hmm. It drops a note every like you know randomly out of the eight eight notes. Maybe one will drop every second bar or something. You don't know which, you know. Um, um, you add a process of a filter opening and closing in an asynchronous kind of like uh, format. So if if the, the bar is like four beats, maybe the cycle of the of the filter will be. 11 beats, you know, something like that. And so, like, then things, ki- like, diff- things of different pacings and different cycles start interacting with each other. Like, basically, you know, Steve Reich kind of like, you know, uh, was built in a very minimalist way, built all around the interaction of different timings, right? So, you can add that to different things. At a certain point, right? wouldn't layers. that be
0: still, uh, wouldn't that eventually become a pattern? I remember once you told us that like, if you keep having the element of surprise constantly come into the the performance, it will eventually become a pattern and it will be expected. So, I mean, yeah,
2: yeah, you're right. And, uh, and I mean, if it's always, if it's always, uh, you know, if, if every time you prepare something, you surprise. You know, like uh, as a give a every time you do a deceptive cadence, every single time you have a five, you go to a six, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. Then of course it becomes a pattern. But then oh, you go to a one, you know, like and then it'll be like so. Th- then it comes. Then it comes to the higher level of sort of storytelling, really, right? You know, so mm-hmm. um, so the layering part, the complexity internally, gives you a little bit more time. You know, because things are interesting; they're very active internally. Kind of like you 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 simulate life by adding complexity, but of course you still need to do some change at some point. Even in Steve Reich's pieces, you know, there is like these things happening, and then it cuts and starts a new process. You know, because yes, just being a good storyteller in that way.
1: Right. Absolutely. absolutely.
0: I, I think it's interesting that you you mentioned uh, live coding. So as you're exploring and developing technological tools such as ear training and live coding, like you said, did you find any resistance from people who are skeptical about implementation of technology in music?
2: It's a, it's a funny question. It's a, of course, you know, there's always resistances, just people. But uh, I, uh, my take on this is I have a very strategic forgetfulness. I don't really remember. I don't really store those moments mm. when, when there is resistance. They just do whatever and just move forward and they just do it anyways. Um, I don't, I don't, I can't, I can't pinpoint moments like that because I really don't store them. You know, I, I find that, uh, look, like, especially where I am. Mm-hmm. I'm at a university, right? right? And uh, universities are kind of like publicly funded places of knowledge, not only dissemination, not only sharing and teaching, but also knowledge generation. Right. You know, like, it's a, it's, it's a very fortunate place to be if somebody who's very curious because it's your job to push the envelope, and to try different things, and you know, you you always find justification for that. That's what research is. So maybe if I were more living in in the industries, there may be, be more resistance to that. More like even there, it would be sort of a profit based more than sort of uh, holding on to a dogma. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but in university, it's just like a perfect place for trying things and and pushing the envelope and sometimes failing. But then it's part of the process, you know. For, Moving forward, right. so yeah, so I, I don't, I for, I I don't remember those things. I just, uh, just
0: for, I ignore them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um. So as as somebody who is is just starting off my audio career, and um, I guess relatively starting our, our our careers off, I've looked at you as as um as a mentor in my audio career, and I'm sure to many others as well, and. As Jayan and I have created this podcast, honestly, we created it because we wanted to op- the opportunity to talk to, to interesting people, but also because we thought uh, students and aspiring musicians and sound engineers might benefit from, uh, from learning directly from people in this industry. I'm sure that in your years as a professor, you must have met many talented and individuals. What were some traits or characteristics you consider essential to thrive as students and later as professionals.
2: Yeah, thank you for for saying. By the way, like I appreciate it. And um, yeah, I, I feel really privileged actually. Um, you know, by meeting um, you two, but throughout for many years, you know, obviously seeing uh, um, not not as many years as Kevin yet, <laughs> but, uh, but 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 I, I have been at Concordia now for eighteen years, so it's like I've I've definitely seen. People at different stages of their development and evolution and, and growth, career-wise, family-wise, and it's always very inspiring to see. I think we we learn a lot from each other and about ourselves through through each other, you know, and and the the journeys that people are are making. And uh, so, to answer more specifically, um, the way I see it, I'll, I guess I'll speak first from my own experience, sort of like uh, um, growing, you know, as a as a academic, professional, whatever, I really believe that joy, joy is, is kind of like a, a crucial, not just for our health. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's a very pragmatic okay. aspect of, of, our, of our growth and our success. Like, it's just contagious. You know, like when, when, you, uh, when you allow yourself to, to feel the joy of what you do because you love it. And sometimes the joy of, uh, of just like learning stuff that is outside of you, you know, it's, it can be challenging and all that. But even through the struggle, there's joy. I think it's really, it's not about showing joy. You know, it's not about that, you know, showing joy so people like you and, uh, and they want to hire you. Mm-hmm. So it's not this. It's like the joy of like a real joy of like you're doing something that is special because you chose it because your heart chose it. And it's contagious. Like when you are, when, when you leave that, it just opens up. Um, it's like it, like it opens up the universe. It's almost, you know, like sort of a law of attraction kind of, uh, kind of thing. Maybe not almost. Maybe that's what it is. And so I think this is like more important than everything as a, as a foundation. I don't know. Maybe it's uh, it's it's hard, and I don't want to say something that is exclusive, because for some people joy is hard. At least at some at some uh, point in their lives or in their mental health, it's not always available because something some, sometimes things are very hard. But I think there's something to aspire for, like to remember, you know, that uh, that you are doing it from the heart. So maybe maybe if not joy, then meaning, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that. Uh, um, what I see from successful people, and there have been a big list of very successful um, students and graduates and al- alumni. It's hard to identify one, you know, one thing. Obviously, because right? people have succeeded in different ways in, in in games, in films, in TV, in bands, in uh, um, some went. To be university or CSEP teachers, and went to do PhDs, and went on the academic career. You know, like there is a multidisciplinary artist. There is a lot of um, yeah. um, ways to succeed and 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 be a career, like have a career. Like I'm always, I always go back to my first student. Actually, in, in the 2005 year training that was stood out in class ten and still stands out as a, as a very unique, worldwide known uh, artist, Navid. You know, Navid, Naveed Navab. Um.
1: Heard the no, name sounds familiar. Sorry. I'm not gonna lie. I think you. The name sounds like something you mentioned before. Yeah, he's, he's, a,
2: he's a special guy. He's, a, he's, he's, he's his own kind. I'll be sure to look know, him and, up? Uh, Yeah, he, please do. Like he builds these crazy things. His brain is just. Uh, he's a genius. And that's a very sort of like unique way of, of 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 success, right? It's not going to work for Ubisoft, which of course many many of us, many students have done that too. But um, what I've noticed in all of these that I could put. Together is, it didn't happen right away, but it happened at some point at least. There was this like, whew, like understanding that this is my journey. I own it. You know, the the studies are part of it. The studies is not about, it's like, you know, it's, it's for some reason the way education works in our society is a bit stupid. And we've you know, like, because we grow up as kids into high school and all you know, it's like, and, and because uh, it's not a place of joy, mm-hmm. education in general, which kind of like puts a, makes it hard to own it um, and to to be with it, because you're always in an opposition mode. I'm trying, and you know, I'm, I'm being judged, I'm being evaluated, I'm being uh, you know forced to do these things, or I don't you know I I don't pass, I don't I I'm, I'm devalued, whatever you know. And really? I, I don't think it's a good system, but uh, it's our reality. And at university, when when you people break away from that and realize, oh shit, this is my choice. <laughs> this is actually I'm here because I wanted to be here, and this is my thing. I'm gonna. Own it and take 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 it, you know, and like if I, it's not about getting an A plus. I'm gonna get an A plus because I because I can and I want to. But it's not about that. Yeah. Um. It's about me excelling in 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 my craft and in what I want to do. When so I could see the transition sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, students who are came sometimes from failed. Either failed in different in different departments because they went there for with the pressure of parents or whatever or society or whatever, um, and sometimes on a on a failed conditional almost expelled level, <laughs> you know, like we would, you know, we would accept into the program and fight for the university to let them stay sometimes. Um, and Kevin oh, really? has, has been a very sometimes yeah, there were cases like mm. that too. And then they come to the program and wow, they become like some of our best students. You know, and like, and, and they just like kind of like lift off from that. That's amazing. Um, and, and sometimes in the program itself, people who had like, uh, I have some people in mind, I won't mention names, of course, but uh, people who were, who were on one hand very enthusiastic about everything, but they never did the work. So they were always they were failing their courses just because they wanted to do only what, what they find mm. interesting. Um, and they would go to conferences and stuff that were really excited about all this kind of stuff, but it just didn't know how to balance yeah. the, uh, the work. I remember like telling, telling one of the students who's now a superstar, telling them, like, you know, I can see you really love this stuff. With these grades, you won't, you won't make it. You want to go to a master, to a PhD, that, that's yeah. not going to cut it. And, and that apparently made a difference. And then, like, suddenly it mm. <laughs> just happened. And, that's and, amazing. You know, and they went and got their PhD and, like, you know, it's, a, it's, yeah. it's interesting. It's like it's a growing up quickly. Kind of thing to you have, know i, have I to often think about <laughs> like
0: I, the decisions that people make that take them through different paths uh and, and, and it doesn't matter like there could be the the strangest path and, and it leads them to success i wonder um if you could tell us about a decision you made or didn't make that you felt derailed you in the moment or perhaps even shook your confidence
2: shook my confidence for sure but uh but again my uh strategic forgetfulness um doesn't like to tell the story of derailment because I, I I think that the process of growth is just naturally happening with errors. You know, even evolution requires errors. You know, for variations, for in order to uh, mm-hmm. to move forward. So I I can say one story that was hard for me at some point along the way, but I I know now like how important it was for me to actually uh, do it. I went to uh, do a PhD in, uh, in music composition in, in New York, straight from my bachelor's, and. And that was kind of like at the time it looked like a good choice. you know, oh, I can go to straight to PhD, you know from bachelor's, I can skip the masters. It's all good unless you don't finish it and then you are left with no masters and no I ba- know <laughs> <and> <laughs> that happened to me like after two years I realized, well, this is not exactly me. I didn't do badly. I did well actually, my GPA and everything yeah. was fine. but I was a bit lost about what is it? What am I doing here? This is not what I want exactly. I was it was a lot of very cool abstract things. That I could not quite. I enjoyed, you know, doing them like crossword, like very complex crossword puzzles, but not, not as meaningful things. And I also looked at the teachers around me in the, uh, in, the in the, in the university I was in, which was a very high ranked. Like it was the time was the number three PhD in composition in the US. Like was really high, mm-hmm. highly ranked. So it was prestigious and all that. But I just felt I had no idea what I was doing. Like you know, what what is it for? Um, right. So I left after two years, and we moved to Montreal. And then the story of derailment definitely was in my head. Like, I felt like, oh, yeah, I had two years of a PhD, but I have nothing to show for it. Like, I don't have, I only have a bachelor's. All of my dreams, I want to teach, I want to, you know, like, I'm kind of stuck right now. What am I doing? However... My wife is a is an awesome insp- how do you say inspirator, <laughs> inspiring, <laughs> uh, like just just basically very wi- very wise. She told me like you know you want to compose compose you want to send pieces you know you want to have your pieces performed just send them out you want to teach apply to teach you know like well, you know you don't have to f- to feel like uh, you kind of like you're at a dead end you know it's a, and that's a nice and, support and, and with Mike Pinstonow that I mentioned yeah and Mike Pinstonow who believed in me. Said like, yo, you should apply for this course, and I. So I, even be, without having a master's or a PhD, I applied to teach that ear training class, and it happened. You know, I got the opportunity. You know, like, and it's only when I stopped sort of thinking about this as derailment. It just said, like, okay, I was something didn't work, but I had to go there to see. And now I'm, I'm looking back, and I, I love that I went there because it kind of like it weaved the journey where where it took me. You know, it, uh, the I don't know if you know this very this is this uh, beautiful uh, metaf- metaphor. There is a, a rabbi who is telling a story about how, how do lobsters grow. Just look up on the, on, on the internet. Look on YouTube. How do <laughs> sure, lobsters right, grow? It
1: up. <laughs> how do lobsters
2: grow? Check it out. You, okay. you know what I'm talking about. But it's in the
1: description, guys.
2: <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> it's basically, it, it, is, it is about how pressure, stress, what we feel as pain is kind of like a huge part of our transformation, and vulnerability, you know, is kind of like is, is, is part of that as well. Yeah, I would throw away the world derailment because I think that we don't go in a we don't go yeah. on a track. We we are mapping our our, our world, you know, our, our path, you know, in, in this. It's activity. a path, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, So the path can be slalomy, It can go into the woods. It can go down into the river, you know. <laughs> but it it it's if we go through the river and we come back, it's not like the river was was meaningful. Right, you know, we were there. Something happened there. We 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 felt some things. We remember some things. So, um,
1: absolutely. I uh, all that. I just I am feeling like I'm in a lecture all over again. <laughs> I what you're saying is so true, and I think there's there's valuable lessons in here that um, graduates from the electroacoustic program, such as myself and Anthony, can really pull from. Even though we're, we're hosting, I feel like I'm I'm currently listening to this, and I'm feeling mm-hmm. very inspired. And and I I really think that the the electroacoustic program um, is a, a source of infinite possibility when we meet minds like yours. And, you know, there I, I met Anthony at Concordia, and, and we very quickly saw uh, uh, a great connection between the two of us, and we grew and we learned and we fed off each other, and it's, a, it's, a, it's great for that. And, you know, if it weren't for that and people like you, we never would have created this podcast. So for that, I, I, I want to say yeah. thank you, and I feel very inspired by what you're saying right now. And um, I I think that this is the, the perfect place to just ask. the. We have a, a tradition here where we ask the, the final question. Um, and the question is, um, what is your advice to people who want to get into the space of sound? You know, I think that this, you know, you've you've pretty much said all the way through, but I, I want to see, like, just take it home for us. What is the, the value? Of this place, what what does it represent to you? Let's really like answer it to the the fullest.
2: Yeah, and I don't I don't know if I have anything mind blowing, but I would just say, listen, um, learn techniques. But one you know the one one at a time. You know you don't have to jump you know to to the top right away. Just like enjoy every one of them. Collaborate is is huge. As like you guys are doing, you know that you you inspire yeah. each other, and you plug yourself into the communities that interest you. Um, for collaboration, for getting ideas, for um, you know, pulling each other. And you know, and I, and one thing I understood well, electroacoustics is, has has been my my path, you know, and like uh, the, the thing that uh, that sort of brought me into this world of exploration. It's not really about electroacoustics. It, to me, it's about people. You know, like yeah, I go through what my my what I love. Yeah. You know, like it's uh it's. I love sound, and you know, I've always loved sound. I've always, even as a little kid, I, I listened to music. I love the music, but I love the sound of the music. And I and I realized when something didn't sound right, it like what I considered as a young kid as oh, it's not a good quality. Now I I look back and I can remember the sound, and I know it wasn't even about timbre, or about you know like or noise. It was about space, right? It was just like um, when the space was incoherent. You know, from a record playing something and the, the space was phasey and weird, you know, even if the timbre was fine, that's, that's usually what stood out, you know, like to so understanding living in this perception of sound is just natural, is is, is me, like it's always been me. So this is the, this is my channel into the world of people, right? But it really is about people eventually, you know, mm-hmm. it's
1: about... Absolutely. I, it is all about people. I think that is something that's uh, so true. So very true. Aldara, um, I want to thank you. Yeah. For coming on the, the SoundSpace, uh, for kicking us <laughs> off on this uh, second year of, of doing this, I don't think uh, uh, I don't think that we could have started off yeah. uh, on a better tone as to the energy you bring, the mindset you have. You.
0: Definitely, I was so happy when you when you responded and you said yes that when you agreed to come on. I was, yes, absolutely, you.
1: absolutely, yeah.
2: Awesome, yeah, yeah. I really I really feel honored, that, and uh, it's been fun.
1: Yeah, it's been it's been a blast. It's uh it's been uh, absolutely amazing. If people want more of this and, and want to f- contact you or want to converse with you, where can people find you online? Where can they follow you?
2: Yeah, always. Uh, I mean, people can just email me, um, you know, or find me on Facebook. Um, but uh, but I think just looking finding me at Concordia and emailing me, I'll, I'll be very happy. And you know, to even set up meetings and stuff,
1: you know, like show you around the program. So. It's very, it's very open door. Absolutely. We'll leave a link to your current Cordia email in the description so people can contact you. Um, Anthony, where can people find you?
0: Uh, you can find me uh, on most social medias, but I'm most active on Instagram. That's at akachi.audio and you can find me, you can find my website at akachi-audio.com.
1: Perfect. Uh, I'm at Giant Music on social media. And my website is giantmusic.com. The artwork for this podcast is provided by GoPro Keo. He's done all of our thumbnails, all of our logos and everything. He's amazing. We thank him so much. We also want to remind you to go check out our sponsor, Leza Audio Technologies. He, uh, Well, Eldad, it's Aiden. Aiden Baker has his own <laughs> plugin development company. Oh, sweet. And he's killing it. Yeah, he's such a and, uh, talented uh, he, guy very talented he's sponsoring us yeah. i mean uh, you heard the 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 the, sh- the message play uh, halfway through the show but i'm reminding you guys use code soundspace get uh, 30% off any plugin that you uh, purchase there and uh, you can follow soundspace on social media twitter facebook instagram tiktok youtube uh, we're on every single podcatcher give us a five star review We appreciate all of your feedback. And of course, anchor.fm slash soundspace is where you can find all of our episodes too. So for myself, Eldad and Anthony, this has been another episode of Soundspace. Bye everyone. Cheers. Bye.